everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is As Lutheran As It Gets. We are your host, Pastor Christopher Gillespie. Now we're talking into the same mic. I know, it's exciting. Well, separated by a great distance. But Hardware yes. update. I am Pastor Donovan Riley. This is episode 54 or 55? Uh, it's episode the next episode. <laughs> 55. That is, thank you. That was super helpful. Yeah. So for those of you listening, this is episode 55 of the well-oiled machine that we do refer to as the podcast. Otherwise, let's just dive right into it. Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide, for round us falls the eventide. Oh, let your word, that saving light, shine forth undimmed into the night. And that is the first stanza of Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide. Mm -hmm. Uh, Words, German version by Philip Melanchthon, and then updated by Nicholas Selnicker. I've got notes here that Selnicker wrote two to six, and Melanchthon wrote stanza one. So I, I don't know. Maybe uh, Melanchthon just wrote the little short stanza one, and they dropped the rest it of it. Could be. There we go. Yeah. yeah. But a little background on Selnicker before we dive in. Then Nicholas Selnicker, born in fifteen thirty-two, and he died in fifteen ninety-two. He was the son of Georg Selnicker, born at Hersbruch on December 5, 1532. He attended school at and attracted, oh, I'm sorry, he attended school at Nuremberg, during which time he was organist at the chapel in the Kaiserberg there, and attracted nice. the attention and interest of King Ferdinand and the royal singers. Selnicker attended the University of Wittenberg in 1550, graduating as MA in 1554. He became Melanchthon's favorite pupil and later, due to his influence, was appointed court preacher to the elector August at Dresden. His other duties were those of a tutor to Prince Alexander and to supervise the education of the chapel boys in the royal chapel. He was ordained at Wittenberg in 1558. At the Saxon court during this time, there were many crypto-Calvinists, who found their plans and preachings regarding consubstantiation thwarted by Selnicker's presence there. And so they decided to overthrow him. He openly adhered to strict Lutheranism in regard to the Lord's Supper. Their opportunity came when Selnicker took it upon himself to defend his friend, Martin Hoffman, who had been exiled for preaching against the elector's reckless hunting. Selnicker was himself released from office for incurring the displeasure of the elector. He is said to have written the hymn Hilf Herr mein Gott in dieser Not on this occasion, but it is more probable that the hymn was written about Selnicker's own troubles and sorrows, for his friend left in 1564, and the hymn is dated 1565. Hmm. He left Dresden and took the office of professor at the University of Jena, which he held for three years. In spite of his previous stand against the Calvinists here, he was suspected of being one himself, possibly because he had been a favorite disciple of Melanchthon. Yep. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. Again, he was compelled to leave. Now he became professor of theology at the University of Leipzig, pastor of St. Thomas's Church, and superintendent of Leipzig, having come again into the favor of the elector. Here he worked quietly and successfully for 12 years, after which he was sent to Wolfenbüttel, 
one of my favorite libraries, where he served as court preacher and general superintendent, making many improvements in schools and churches. He resumed his work in Leipzig, in 1574, when again he became involved in bitter doctrinal disputes regarding the Lord's Supper. And together with Chemnitz and Andre, he prepared the Formula of Concord, which was published in 1577. This was violently attacked, and yet was successful largely because it was subscribed to by so many. Hmm. It was written mainly to unite the Lutherans and to exclude the Romanists on the one hand, and the Calvinists on the other. Following the year 1579, he spent several quiet years at Leipzig, devoting much of his time to building up the Motet Choir of the St. Thomas Church there, which was later to come under the leadership of Johann Sebastian Bach. Hmm. When the elector died, his son, Christian I, who was under Calvinistic influence, came into power. And, you guessed it, Selnicker was compelled to leave Leipzig. (laughs) <laughs> I just can't avoid this. <laughs> he became superintendent at Hildesheim. While he was there, Christian died and the Calvinists lost power. Selnicker again being recalled to Leipzig. Chancellor Krell, which sounds like something out of Star Trek, mm-hmm. who had influenced Christian's Calvinistic leanings was deposed. And Selnicker returned. Too broken down in health to continue work, he died May 24. 1592. He had lived during an age of marked doctrinal controversy, and through it all, he will always be remembered as one of the great champions of pure Lutheran doctrine. We owe about 150 hymns to this man, and in addition, he wrote some 175 theological and controversial works. So we have Lord Jesus Christ with us abide, uh, in, the, in the Lutheran hymnal, 1941, O faithful God, thanks be to thee. Let me be thine forever. O Lord, my God, I cry to thee. So there you go. That is the biography, in brief, of one Nicholas Selnicker, defender of the faith. And it's an interesting point that he composes uh, his hymnody in the midst of controversy, right? Right. And I I don't know, did we talk about in the previous hymn episodes? I'm not sure if we did. Where where it's like a crucible or it's like um it's like fire when when your mm-hmm. theology is tested, you know, in his case it brings out of him actually poetry, right? Right. Um he's he's confessing the faith. I mean, obviously he wrote, you know, theological works, uh, Formula of Concord being the big one, right? He helped compose that, but you know that when you're struggling um, against false doctrine, then uh, this is one of the ways you can work work through it. Right. Well, I think we discussed that the power of song in confessing the faith, because mm. I think mm. I mentioned too, this is the power of, of movements, is that all of the great movements in the church, whether heretical or otherwise, there is a strong component there of hymnody or spiritual songs. Because expecting or requiring one to memorize something as simple as the small catechism does not stick in the same way that singing the same hymn that might be Mm. based in something in the catechism month after month, year after year will have on a a person. It's, these are the Holy Ten Commands comes to mind, for example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Luther composed hymns for all the parts of the catechism. Right. He also, um, you know, had the visual posters which weren't just the text of the catechism, but then surrounding the text mm-hmm. were images, right? right. To teach Which whatever those, it was. Those were done by uh, Chronic, weren't they? 
I think so. Their and, woodcuts uh, by Cronach. Yeah, you'll see remnant of that. Like if you have the recent Book of Concord from uh, CPH, they've got the catechism woodcut, some of the catechism woodcuts in there. Right, so that's those. correct. But nonetheless, and I think we've probably discussed this before, if not here, other places, if you really want to find out where everyone around the table stands in relation to the Lutheran confession of faith, or at least the Reformation Lutheran confession, bring out the Lord's Supper. Yeah. As you and I, as pastors know. <laughs> you can also look at what they're singing. And thereby, we'll look at what they're singing, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you see this practically speaking, uh, i that what is the hymn of the day? What is the sermon hymn? The sermon hymn is remarkable in the sense of, does the pastor's sermon echo the words of the hymn or are they in contradiction to one another? Likewise then, during the distribution, what does the hymn sing as (laughs) regards the theology of the Lord's Supper or what aspect of the Lord's Supper is being confessed in the hymn? And we haven't talked uh, talked about specific authors that maybe um, we're a little bit, what do you want to say, suspicious of? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I am. When I look at a composer, if it's like Thomas Aquinas, for example, um, you know, I'm going to be a little cautious. Why? Because right. we're not Thomistic. I mean, that's a, right. he's a Roman Catholic theologian and fully, I mean, he's responsible, right. what, for a lot of the um, mo- modern philosophical underpinnings of the Roman church, right? Yeah, right. And that's a great point, too, that we all use... A, a common language, a biblical mm-hmm. language. But as I remarked to a friend the other night, just because I say that we're saved by grace does not automatically mean that you and I hold to the same definition of grace. Yeah, define grace. Right. Yeah. That words do matter, context does matter. And therefore, as you pointed out, we do need to read and sing and study with uh, a filter, hmm. depending on who it might be. The, the, one that, the one that comes to mind when you mentioned the Lord's Supper um, is one of the, really, I think, at least in my experience, one of the most beloved of the uh, Lord's Supper hymns. But it's written by Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Right. That's correct, and, um, sir. I read that, and I'm like, hmm. Yeah. So then I'm cautious, because Zinzendorf right. uh, was, you know, really what the one of the forefathers of what we call Lutheran pietism. That is correct, yes. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I, I find your lack of concrete details about the Lord's Supper lacking. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually, that's exactly what's going on in that hymn. It is. It's not exactly wrong, but it doesn't exactly say much. So it's hard to be wrong. (laughs) Well, and I think this goes to the point of what distinguishes a great Lutheran hymn Mm. from a good Lutheran hymn. And another aspect, well, a great hymn is Jesus Christ for you for the forgiveness of sins. A good hymn is about Jesus, about his life, about his ministry. And a bad hymn is about, well, us actually, and mm. our doings. And usually Jesus isn't there, or if he is Unless there, he's- spoken in the negative, right? Correct. Yes, exactly. Yeah. If it's a confession of the old Adam, or a confession that damns the old Adam. Mm. But you see this, the the there is an overlap that I find lacking in the church's confession at present. And what I mean by that is that we either spiritualize our faith and kind of hunker down in the third article of the creed to make everything spiritual, capital S spirit or little s spirit. And we essentially turn our nose up at the world and say, well, the world is damned and evil and garbage and gross, which is a Manichaean mm-hmm. attitude primarily. But or we'll go the complete opposite direction and we'll <laughs> be so grounded in the first article that we'll make sacraments out of going for a walk in the woods or climbing a mountain or going fishing. Yeah. or whatever is quote-unquote spiritual in, in our estimate, or you see the attempt to build a kingdom of God on earth 
in a spiritual third article monastic sense, or the kingdom of God on earth in a first article earthly secular sense, like a commune, for example. Right. right. We see this with socialism. We see this with atheism, these movements that come out of the church, actually, that attempt to establish the kingdom of God on earth, uh, millennial movements, apocalyptic movements. Rather than if you stay grounded in the second article at the cross of Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully man, that's where the first and third articles overlap. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when we sing then of the Lord's Supper, of the sacraments in, in general, baptism and the forgiveness of sins, where is the concrete reality of what God is doing for you in the present tense, not just in the capital S spiritual sense, third article sense, mm -hmm. but then how does this then pour you out into the world, into your vocation as a right. Christian? Right, so, so where Jesus is present, uh, whether through his word or sacrament, Correct. Uh, that's heaven and earth meeting, yes, right? Absolutely. And, and, and the man Jesus, and I think the God man Jesus. I think great Lutheran hymnody captures that. Yeah, I was thinking of um, Wilhelm Lue's hymn, right? Yeah. Wide open stand the gates adorned with pearl, right? And uh, time and eternity meeting, which is another right. way of saving heaven and earth meeting, right? And maybe that's the true art of someone who writes or composes hymns is to join the heavenly to the earthly in such a way that you do not, you hold them in tension. Mm -hmm. You don't let either slip and become so grounded in earthly things that the Holy Spirit kind of gets pushed out of the picture. And likewise, then it becomes so spiritualized that we kind of get pushed out of the picture. Yeah. That is in the sense of we want to escape our bodies so desperately that in our hymnody, for example, and in our prayers and in our preaching, we mm -hmm. tend toward how, how can I get clear of having to die and be raised from the dead? <laughs> yeah. And trying to get to heaven by some other means, right? Just right. Thinking of heavenly things, maybe. Exactly. So let's dive back into, this is hymn 585 in the Lutheran Service Book. If you're playing the whole game. One. And we'll go you back to stanza one. I'll reread it. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide, for round us falls the eventide. Oh, let your word, that saving light, shine forth undimmed into the night. That's beautiful. That is Luke 24, isn't right. it? Right. Yeah. And this is long meter for those of you. Mm -hmm. We're paying attention, lower right-hand corner, LM means long meter. Jerusalem, my happy home, is in long meter. Um, the reason I bring this up is, for those of you who are interested, the, the meter, is it the, it's a little blue soft, I gave mine away, that's why I'm not drawing it. It's the metric psalter, that's what it's called. Hmm, it's okay. the metric psalter based on the book of prayer, the book of common prayer, I believe. Mm-hmm. The, the chant tones of the Book of Common Prayer. And what I appreciate about the Book of Common, or the Psalms in Common Meter is they're all set then to a particular meter, as the title um, indicates, but it allows for you then, if you know one hymn in that meter, such Amazing Grace, for example, is in Common Meter. So even if you don't like Amazing Grace, that's Common Meter, you can then sing or chant a psalm to the Common Meter. And as long as you know that the tune is Amazing Grace, you can chant or sing any psalm in common meter mm, okay. to that tune. And I just find that, especially for laity, when they come to me and ask, Pastor, I don't like, you know, to chant in my apartment or something like that. Or they're just not, they're not, they don't have, like me, they can't really carry a chant tone. I know it's mm. amazing, but there are people out there like me, we exist in the mm -hmm. wild. And therefore they ask, well, is there any way I can sing these psalms? Or is there any way that I can build upon my reading or my devotions in regards to the psalms? And that's why I point out is, oh, go to Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. That's a long meter. And then we'll go through the back of the LSB under the section, which lays out the different 
hymns with their meter. And then you can find one in long meter or common meter or whatever it may be that you know, a tune you're familiar with. And then you can go to the, the metric Psalter and you can use that tune to sing a psalm. So abide with us, right? Where, uh, and that's the direction of things. Correct. It's a, this is a prayer asking the Lord to abide with us like the disciples did on the road to Emmaus, right? Yeah. Stay with us because it's evening and we need your light. And it is, that is the word for, that is the definition of tabernacling. Mm-hmm. To tabernacle, that is to abide. I think in the RSV, it's translated as abide in John chapter one. He abided with his people. Mm-hmm. But literally to tabernacle, that's where the word comes from, abide or here, Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. One, as you pointed out on the road, they mm-hmm. ask, hey, stay. But in John chapter one, it's the same word, stay or abide, which points us back to the tent of meeting in the Old Testament or to the temple, the Holy of Holies. And also First John, which is listed at the bottom, right? That First is John correct. Two, little children abide in him so that when he there you is go. revealed, yeah. We'll have confidence and round us falls the even tide, otherwise known as well, old age and death. Hmm. Right. Or as my organist pointed out in parochial school, this is one of the hymns they would sing at the end of the day, at the end of the school day. And so this is, they they would sing this before they went home for the day. I think we talked about it um, in regards to, I don't remember which episode, recent episode, we were talking about how like all things mean something Mm. uh, in the scripture. Nothing's like immaterial. And even, uh, this is in the catechism, I mean, even evening and morning is a picture of death and resurrection. Right? Correct. Correct. Right. So if it's even tie, that means uh, we're air on to death, right? But not in a Greco-Roman sense of the eternal recurrence of the same. No. <laughs> so, so our days are not uh, reincarnations, or something. right? It's not a circle endlessly repeating, or the uh, what's the the snake that endlessly eats its own tail? Mm, yeah. But here there is there is repetition, right. but but it's not. It is with an end. Yeah. Right. Again, words matter. Context matters. Don't don't get your philosophy in my theology. Don't mix your mm-hmm. peanut butter with my chocolate. Let your word, that saving light, again, the image of darkness, the even tide, and God's word being the light of the world, shine forth undimmed into the night. Mm-hmm. So John 8, Colossians 2, 1 John 2, and Luke 24 are the scriptural references at the lower right-hand corner here. So that's the opening salvo. Abide with us. Because why? Well, because I'm getting old Mm -hmm. and I'm going to die and go down into death. And therefore, I need you to come and be the light that shines in the darkness. And the means of him dwelling with us is by his word. Yes. It's very clear. Precisely. Stanza two, in these last days of great distress, grant us, dear Lord, true steadfastness that we keep pure till life is spent your holy word and sacrament, hmm. which now that we've read the biography of Nicholas Selnicker, you understand where that stanza comes from, which for him is a gunshot. That's when we, when we mentioned, you know, being suspicious of the writer, when you read the hymn, I right. mean, that's his life story is people were suspicious of him because of his connection to Melanchthon. Right. He was a crypto Calvinist or mm-hmm. um, what, what else? What was the other kind of pejorative term for those who followed after Melanchthon? Um, Especially receptionists, yeah. There was that Philippists, right? And this is in our, you know, in our uh, setting, you know, those who have the unaltered Augsburg Confession. That's kind of a thumb in your nose at Melanchthon as well, correct? Right. right. 
and his yeah he hasn't Mariana. been uh, he hasn't been received well by Lutherans historically. <laughs> Well, part of that is in specifically in the Missouri Synod, our, our book of Concord, the Triglata had the Benti introduction, which the is introduction, right? Fairly, um, um, not very kind to Melanchthon. Yeah, right. Put it that way. Yeah, but you look, he doesn't break look, the eighth he, commandment, but he definitely <laughs> polishes the line. How about that? But it's interesting when you were reading the bio of Zellnecker, you know how how real you know that um, you know, the, those tribal lines, those party politics, right. how real right. they were. And among Lutherans, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people are uh, get upset that Lutherans argue amongst themselves, and you're like, you know, that's how it's been since basically the beginning. Right? It's <laughs> it's genetic. It's in our DNA. <laughs> that's that. Well, and it's it's iron sharpens iron, or you know, testing doctrine and fire, and through challenge and difficulty, putting you know, the we're best not, construction on it. Yes. Well, I know, but we're not. You know, we're not going to be content with like, well, that's maybe not the best way to say it, but it's okay, and so we'll just live right. with it. Well, there's a lack of plasticity. And what I mean by that is in the Roman Catholic Church, because of its age, mm-hmm. and that it really, the church itself evolved during a time when there is no internet, there is no, there's no way, there's no mass transit, and therefore you could go far from Rome and still exist within the purview of the papacy. Yeah. You could go as far as Brazil, for example, and be in the jungles of the Amazon and still be a devout Roman Catholic as far as that goes. However, the closer you got to Rome, the more you might find yourself at odds with other Roman Catholics mm-hmm. yeah. versus in Lutheranism, not the Reformation Lutherans, which they argued amongst themselves. That's how we got the Book of Concord. But as it evolved, especially in the immigrant um, population that came to the United States, the Prussian migration, for example, out of which mm-hmm. the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uh, grows. This is born one out of a sectarian spirit. That yep. is, we are not going to join this union because this is this is false doctrine. But then also coming to a new country and deciding, no, we're not going to abandon our language, our culture, our traditions, our history. In fact, we think we should we ought to secede. We, yeah. we ought to take uh, at least a part of the state of Missouri and just make it New Germany. But that being said, then there is a lack of plasticity in the Lutheran church historically because it's a part of a tribal migration, a, an immigrant population that as with every immigrant population, you try and retain that which gives you your identity. Right. It's not fair to call it just blatant racism. No, um, I don't think so. I mean, it is Germanic. I, that's true in our in, in this particular context that we're talking about, right? Um, but it's even more than that because it's Saxons versus you know Franconians or Hanoverians. Sure. Then you think of Walther with um, uh, the conflict with the Buffalo Synod, right? Which was mm-hmm. uh, you know a different German people group, and uh, so they right. were suspicious. Well, Walther and Leia, and yeah, and Leia too. Walther right. and the Iowa Synod. <laughs> yeah, no, there were many. There are many Walther and <laughs> debates, right? And so I, I mean, it is trying to protect, and, I, and again, it's coming out of this you know, the, the church has been in conflict, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you mentioned unionism, that's with uh, Lutheran and Reformed. Correct. Uh, that the, the Saxons are, you know, running away from, if you like. Which or, is or still present with us to this day. Well, this is yeah, unavoidable. Uh, where, where, where I live, there's a highway that divides us, um, but <laughs> the Reformed are on one side, the Lutherans are on the other side, and the, right. they intermarry. <laughs> right, exactly, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we had the Haugians 
on the Norwegian side of the road and the German pietists on the other side of the road. <laughs> what a combo. They were just close enough to, they were kind of kissing cousins in that sense, and therefore... Mm-hmm. Theologically, um, yeah. Norwe- the Norwegians thought that the Germans were these lascivious hedonists because they, they had stills in the church basement and threw cards and smoked in the wintertime. And the uh, Lutherans thought the Norwegians were a bunch of teetotaling legalists because they only drank in the barn in private where no one could see them. <laughs> and yeah, in the early 50s, once the uh, the intermarrying started to happen, interracial marriages between Germans and Norwegians, all hell broke loose. Yeah, right, exactly. And the final straw was that the the original church was uh, hurt, was ruined in a big storm. And so they were given uh, ground in town to build on. But the mm. land that the current church stands on is on the Norwegian side of the road. Oh, and they still remember. <laughs> but hey, you give you offer a German something for free, he gets over that uh, Norwegian uh, bigotry real fast. Three and a half mm. acres, you say, for free? All right, we can overlook the fact that you're Norwegians. <laughs> so back to the text. Yes, that's sir. your job, but I'm doing it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's stanza one. He gives our confidences in the word. And here he adds... You know that in in the times mm-hmm. of great distress that we that we remain in His Word and sacrament, right as well. And I right. guarantee you, He had to flee a town at least one time in the middle of the night. I guarantee it, oh, right? Because all of these guys ended up fleeing a town in the middle of the night to save their own necks or to save their families' lives. Right. So I'm not and, I'm not unconvinced that the first stanza isn't autobiographical in a certain sense. Also, uh, how would you say this? These are things that. Um, that they, they're infallible. <laughs> I guess that's a good sure. word. That's a theological word, right? Mm. I mean, they're trustworthy. Um, they give us confidence, right? Right. Because they're the Lord's institution. They're mm-hmm. not the kind of things that, um, you know, just kind of soft or, or, or can fade, right. you know, with time. And there's an apocalyptic tone to the hymn. In these last mm. days of great distress, grant us, dear Lord, true steadfastness that we keep pure till life is spent your holy word and sacrament. Now, again, this is a great hymn for the reason that he doesn't say that we keep pure till life is spent our holiness and our devotion to your word or our faithfulness to your word. He doesn't turn it back on himself. By the way, the translation I think is a little weak. It's not keep mm. keep uh, the word and sacrament pure, but it but it to keep uh, to hold on to them steadfastly. There we go. I <laughs> yeah. like it, which is a little bit better. different. Yeah, I mean, it's yes, they can suffer distress themselves, right? People can misuse sure. or mishandle uh, the mysteries. Uh, that's not exactly what he's getting on to. He's saying mm-hmm. when when things are getting rough, that's where you run. Correct. Right. Actually, that's where you run all the time, but right. <laughs> in particular in these gray and latter days, right. as another writer says and it. Yeah. Going to back to your point then about um, the constant debates or the doctrinal conflicts within the current, the church. This is the thing though, too, is that when Selnicker writes this, there is this apocalyptic sense of destiny. The same way that Luther has the same apocalyptic vision of the future. We have, I think, lost that, mm, yeah. but retained the debate. And therefore, we argue with each other incessantly, but we've lost the anchor <laughs> that held us in place and gave a foundation for the debate itself. Why is this so important that we have to argue this? Because we are in the last days. Christ is soon to return. We must remain faithful to his word and sacrament. Versus in the present tense, the debate remains, the argument remains, but it's debated for the sake of orthodoxy or doctrinal purity rather mm. than this imminent sense of Christ's return. 
Yeah, this is the uh, keep the lamps burning, right? Right. These are, these are the, the, or watchmen, you know, waiting for the mm-hmm. morning. That kind and of so thing. in a certain sense, I think maybe now that I'm thinking out loud about this, I think that's why I made the comment earlier when you were talking about the nature of the debates and mm-hmm. the the DNA that makes up so much of current debates is, I think we've just lost that apocalyptic thread in the present tense. Well, that affects all sorts of things in the church, right? Where we- Weekly communion. We, we act like, yeah, we act like we have time. <laughs> right. Right? And oh. in a sense, maybe we do, uh, but maybe we don't, right? So mm-hmm. why wouldn't we behave as to, as if today is the last day? Correct. Right? And, right. and if it were the last day, what, what would you do? How would right. you, how would you uh, remain ready or, or watching? Right? Correct. Well, and mm-hmm. even the Stoic motto, which is uh, memento mori, remember, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Therefore, do not say, I'll do it tomorrow or I'll do it next year. In fact, the letter to James actually addresses this. Mm. Oh, I'm going to go away and I'm going to start a business in a foreign country and make my fortune and I'll come back in a year and then we can pick this back up again. Maybe. (laughs) And James is like, you fool. Who said that you have a year? Who said you're going to make a fortune? Read the beginning of the letter. It's God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. When I win the lottery. (laughs) Right. And so going back to this overlap at the cross between the, the first article and the third article or the two kingdoms, this is again where that overlap happens because you have this stoic motto, the stoic assertion, remember, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So do what you need to do today. Get after it today. Be grateful today. But likewise, then in a theological sense, you don't know when Jesus is going to return and we confess it in the creed every Sunday, at least once a week, you confess it. So whether in the left-hand or the right-hand kingdom, there is this constant urging, this exhortation to take seriously today Yeah. while there is still light, while there is still time. Hmm. But as you pointed out, we tend to let that slip because we think yeah. we've got nothing but time. He's going to get after that in the next stanza too. So back to the stanza, according to Pastor Crit. That was an illusion. To hope grow di- grown dim, to hearts turned cold. Speak tongues of fire and make us bold. To shine your word of saving grace into each dark and loveless place. That is fantastic. Yeah. So, so hearts grow foul and cult. Mm. <laughs> right. In the, in the German, yeah. I like they, that better. They, foul. Well, it's true. I mean, it's true though, right? I mean, yeah. think of... Um, um, Jesus speaking to the seven churches by John, right, mm-hmm. in Revelation, right? Oh, that you were hot or cold, but you're just lukewarm, right. you know? You're, what good are you? It's like salt that loses its saltiness, well, right? And as a pastor, even, we both experience this, which is someone will say, hey, where is so-and-so? They haven't, I haven't seen him in church in a while. Or, hey, can you make a call and or text at so-and-so because they haven't been to church in a while and I talked to them, they said they were going to come and they never showed up or... Or with shut-ins, you call a shut-in, you leave a message, but they don't call you back, whatever it may be. But then when you finally get a hold of them and talk with them, there is this coldness or there is this dimness, to use the language of the hymn, that something has shaken them, something has overrun them, something has overcome them, defeated them in such a way that they've lost hope. They believe that there is no forgiveness for them, that they don't belong at the altar, or they just simply don't care anymore because the cares of this life have carried them away in some other direction. Yeah, we were talking about reaching inactive members, which I think if you ask any seasoned pastor, um, at least I have, the elderly ones, they'll say, mm-hmm. um, they tried everything and they yes, got nowhere. Absolutely. And, you, and you ask, you know, why? I mean, why is it the hardest people to minister to are those 
um, who are no longer in the church but once were. And it's not, like you said, it's not always because they're antagonistic. No. Right? Or, yeah. or, that, or that they were offended or that the mm-hmm. church broke them, although that's true too. Sure. Right? Um, sometimes it's that apathy is, is almost like thicker yes. in a way, right? Yeah. It's harder to break through. Right. It's a harder shell than, than the antagonism because the antagonism right. you can kind of, you know, if they were offended, you, you can respond to that. But right. if they just grew bored or uninterested, yeah. you know, that, that, that's a much harder um, thing to respond to. I, I think, think for probably. a majority of Christians, the devil attacks with benign temptations, <laughs> right is is the banality of his temptations are what allow us to be seduced and lured into sin by him versus more malignant or malicious temptations that are right in your face that may yeah. work against certain people who are maybe teetering on the edge between belief and unbelief for example and so therefore the devil brings about some cataclysmic or apocalyptic event or crisis that drives them away from the altar. But I think for a majority of my people anyways, it's more benign than that. It's, they just it woke is, up one day and decided not to It go. is. It's entropy, that it didn't mm-hmm. just happen. They didn't just wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm done with that church. But it was this pastor, this Sunday school teacher, this person that's no longer alive, this family that once belonged to the church, this event, you know, this, this exchange that happened at a church dinner way back when, it is one moment after another moment after another moment over decades sometimes that then when they become incapable of physically going to church, that's when you learn as a pastor that their attendance at church wasn't based necessarily in their faith or their need for the gifts, but rather simply a sense of obligation and duty to the church as a, a general idea or a, you know a principle. This yeah. is my church kind of idea. But that they weren't there out of a need like I said, for Christ or the gifts, but rather it was on the schedule. And then once they're no longer physically able to come to church, then that kind of completes the trajectory that's been happening for decades, like I said. And then when I call upon them, mm-hmm. their attitude toward me is, eh, I'm fine. Would you like me to bring you the sacrament? It's kind of the question right. you'd rather not. No, nah, Pastor, that's not necessary. I don't even ask no, because I'd rather up. not know. I just bring it right. And, <laughs> right. and say, we're going to have the sacrament. And they say, oh, that'd be good. Right. right. So once they hear that, um, you know, faith maybe is stirred. But but apart from that, yeah. Right. Wow. So hearts grow, Tim, and, and tongues. Speak tongues. Shine A your fire. word. You, you know what he's missing here is... Um, that's a little bit stronger, I think, in the in the German, which I'm not going to read for you. Just spare you. It's about as good as my Spanish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but that he is speaking. I mean, he's preaching this this uh, hymn to his church as well. Right. Um, right. Exactly. That, that's definitely a character here. He's he's trying to apply God's word to the to the struggle of. Mm-hmm. Um, of his church body against, um, well, well, with one another, and then right. uh, against these other false teaching churches. Well, I think this is, uh, we're recording this on a Monday, uh, yesterday, then in the sermon, I brought this up that, again, we often let slip the tension between baptism by word, water, and spirit, but also baptism by the Holy Spirit and fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that something to bring it into relation to baptismal vocation that I pointed out is that you know, the most powerful gift that Christ gives us is that he baptizes us in his name. He baptizes mm-hmm. us and declares us a child of God. And in that baptism, then, there is the washing away of the horror that comes with the threat and the attacks of sin, death, and hell. 
So there is the Spirit, the Word, and the water, but then there's also baptism by fire. And baptism by fire is that very thing, that in the midst of your earthly vocations, sin, death, and hell are going to attack and tempt you. Yeah. And you will come under fire. You're, and, you're actually baptized into it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And this has been law. You look at the original baptismal formula, the rite from 1525, right? And the, the opening salvo is what? Well, we're going to drive out this evil spirit that has possessed this child. That, yeah. of course, has been uh, taken out deleted because in the 20th century and the popular popular rise of psychoanalytical language and clinical psychological language that has come into the church through clinical practical uh, experience cpe and chaplaincy uh we don't we don't like being told that our children aren't born cherubic (laughs) (laughs) little angels but no we need to baptize this child right now at the bedside at the hospital because this child's possessed of an evil spirit and there is no promise that this kid's going to make it home with you No one wants to hear that. (laughs) And yet, scripturally, it's true. And if we took Titus chapter 3, if we took that literally, if we took that as being true, we wouldn't wait to baptize our children. The first call you made after the baby was born is, Pastor, I hope you're on your way. (laughs) You know, is it desperation? Um, It's close to, I suppose. But, There's an but urgency it, but for sure. Well, it's really faithfulness, right? I mean, you're mm-hmm. just saying, this is a gift the Lord, uh, Lord has promised, um, you know, great things through this gift. Right. Why would I say no? Why would I spurn it, right? Right, Or why right. would I delay it? I, that mm-hmm. makes no sense, actually. It's like, my birthday is July 13th, and that would be like someone offering me a gift for my birthday and saying, I'm going to wait till Christmas. Mm-hmm. Why would I do that? <laughs> why would I reject a gift because because if he gives it to you, if you get it right it, then, it just won't be as special as if you're, it's delayed. It won't be as special. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And thus, wow. it, in this baptism by fire that we are actually led in, you, you want to see the model for the baptismal life, read the Gospel of Mark, because that's what Mark is. The entire Gospel of Mark is simply an outline for the baptismal life, because Jesus is baptized and immediately the Holy Spirit drives him into the desert, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. And the angels ministered to him at the end of that time. That's the baptized life. And by the way, take up your cross and follow me, which occurs in chapter eight. That's simply what happens when we're baptized. That's why, for example, the Lord's prayer is prayed in the context of uh, temptation and affliction. That's what it is. The theologian of the cross is given the language of the cross in the Lord's prayer itself. And, uh, you know, the the hymn comes off as sounding... uh, as a lament, right? Mm-hmm. There, there is some lament there, and that that's also appropriate. I mean, in a way, saying you know, deliver us from temptation is saying I am being tempted, right? You're Correct. lamenting that, and you're asking for deliverance from it. Right. And uh, one of the stanzas that's left out, I think I have to read it for you because mm-hmm. you just love it. Is like uh, you know, oh God, things are really bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of there's no rest on the earth, and uh, from many. Sex and many shwarmeri, oh, we know what they are, nice. right? The buzzing bees. Um, are, are being piled upon the heap, right? So there's all, <laughs> things are really bad because there's there's so many false false teachers and, and enthusiasts, mm-hmm. right? That's the shwarmeri. Yes. Um, and, they're, and they're all piling on, right? Right. That's from the psalm. Is it? Yeah, it is. He talks about that, that the, they hemmed me in on all sides like buzzing bees. They surrounded me. And yet, mm, that's right, the buzzing bees. Yeah, yeah and yet you, Lord, cast them into the fire. That's where Luther got that term, right? Yes, right. Mm-hmm. 
So back to the hymn. May glorious truths that we have heard, the bright sword of your mighty word, spurn Satan, that of saving grace into each dark and loveless place. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped that. I didn't <laughs> jump back and forth. May glorious truths that we have heard, the bright sword of your mighty word, spurn Satan that your church be strong, bold, unified in act and song. That rhymes nice. I like it. Glorious truths that we have heard. There's some additional things that uh, uh, that uh, Zellnecker had included. Give mm-hmm. mercy, grace, peace, unity, courage, and patience to your churches. Nice. Yeah. So uh, gifts of the Spirit, right? By the Word. Correct. Right. Fruits and of those the are the yeah. Those gifts of the Spirit are the means by which um, Satan's attacks are deflected. Right. Correct. Burned. Right. And this again is one of the options for in Luther's hymn, one little word can defeat him. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no actual definitive answer. Some some sources I've read, it, it's the word is, this is mm-hmm. my body. Or for and, you. Or mm-hmm. for you. In other sources that I've read, it is God's word or the gospel. One little word can fell him. But regardless, it is God's word that yeah. spurns Satan, that drives the devil away. As yeah. Jesus shows himself as he's tempted in the wilderness, right? Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. So stanza five, restrain, O Lord, the human pride that seeks to thrust your truth aside or with some man-made thoughts or things would dim the words your spirit sings. That is actually my favorite stanza in this hymn. I love that stanza. Restrain, O Lord, the human pride that seeks to thrust your truth aside. It's so good. Because you're preaching against yourself by yes, singing that, exactly. right? <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I love it. Because it, the the implication here is that we must be humbled. And the only mm-hmm. way in which we may be humbled is to literally kill ourselves, so to speak. That is, I must decrease that you may increase. And the way mm-hmm. in which I may decrease is your word. More of your word, more of you, more of your cross, less of me. That which honors you and not... Um, not what we seek to honor ourselves, right? Right, right. Yeah. And so, even though it's not listed here amongst the scriptural texts that this hymn is based on, this is a strongly psalmic hymn. Hmm. There's a strong theology of the Psalms in this hymn. Because in the Psalms in particular, whenever the psalmist laments his people, laments the turning away, following after false gods, or the immorality of his people— Whenever he laments, he also follows up his lamentations most often with, Lord, please forgive my sin. Yeah. Is that even in the midst of his complaint, he still recognizes recognizes either I have sinned by what I've allowed and tolerated, or I have sinned by participating in it. And what what you see here uh, in this hymn is that Zellnecker, a lot like Martin Luther does in Mighty Fortress, he doesn't, they, they don't speak of evil or, you know, that which would afflict us in a kind of an abstract way. They're very right. particular. Very like particular. You know, the sex and the shawmerai. Mm-hmm. Luther, um, you know, talks about the murderous Pope and Turk. Yes. Although, <laughs> uh, translate We'd rather that. not remember yes. those words and translate them, yeah, differently. But... But I mean, you call things what they are, call them out right? Um, in, in your prayers, um, even in your singing, right? And don't, don't shy away from hmm. that. That's, that's very interesting you brought that up because the tendency is to create this we versus they hmm. position in our prayers. And, and so we'll point fingers at the other and say, you are to blame, you are guilty, you have sinned, you are unholy, whatever it may be. 
may be true. Which but, may be true, but you've left out a key component, yourself. How have you contributed to that, right? Right. Enabled that, yes. maybe? Um, or how are you... Um, how is it that you recognize so same. easily the sin that you condemn? Right. If you're going to compare yourself to others, let it be to reveal um, your own sin. Correct. Right. right. Yep. You know? In fact, my six-year-old and I were just having this conversation over coffee this morning that uh, because he asked whether it was good to change or not when you recognize that you've done something wrong or made a mistake. Hmm, okay. And I said, well, actually, that's what humble means. Yeah. It means to recognize that you need to change because what you just did is immoral or unethical or simply you made a mistake. So back up, detach, take a look around, re-engage re and then change. But yeah, that I, I said, well, I said to him, those who can't look at themselves in the mirror and recognize, okay, I, I made a mistake, I need to change, never change because it's always somebody else that needs to change for you. And that's what, I wonder if this is universal or not, but um, when, when you see something that bothers you in someone else, um, that is actually another way that you see yourself in the mirror. You're Correct. seeing yourself reflected in them. Right. You don't like their behavior. The reason you don't like it, because it's the same behavior that you have. Yeah. Augustine says this in the Confessions, that when he recognizes someone else who is proud, it's mm. because he is pride. He has pride. And therefore, the person is a mirror, right? <laughs> How would you know it otherwise, right? Right. Or even Aristotle, like attracts like. Mm. We recognize that in the other that we want to be admired in ourselves, right? So, so as Zellnecker is, you know, is lamenting or uh, bemoaning the, the sex in the Schwarmerite. He's seeing how he himself, actually, according right. to his biography, he participated in similar things. Right. You know, he aligned himself with certain sects. You know, within mm -hmm. even his own uh, confession of faith and did battle against, um, you know, <laughs> like believers mm -hmm. um, and look at what it got him. I mean, he had to run from town to town and right. nobody would receive him. And, you know, it, it was not, uh, that's not a good thing either. Right. And hmm. that is the strange irony in the church historically throughout is quite often the thing that you're accused of, you're accused of it by the people who are actually guilty of perpetrating the thing they're accusing you of. <laughs> yeah, I sent you a, a text this morning. Uh, That's correct. From a female theologian, and ironic yes. <laughs> that what she was lamenting is exactly what she, she was does. lamenting social media presence and how once you create a brand for yourself on social media, you have you're kind of cursed to to perpetuate that. Otherwise, you will lose your brand. You'll lose your audience. Unless you're an artist, and maybe there's there's a little bit more acceptance to reinvent yourself, right? Sure. But you're yeah. not guaranteed your fans are going to go along with you. Right. They may abandon you, like when you, oh, I don't know, like Dylan, when he brings out the electric That's right. right? That's right. And then he lost all the folkies. Right. Or this is a them. jazz festival. <laughs> and it was at a jazz festival, too. Right. <laughs> oh, folk jazz festival, which that's a strange combination. Right on. <sighs> so stanza six, the final stanza in the Lutheran service book. Stay with us, Lord, and keep us true. Preserve our faith, our whole life through. Your word alone, our heart's defense, the church's glorious confidence. Nice. Notice throughout, this throughout all the stanzas, who is running the verbs of salvation? It's the Lord. It's Jesus. It's the word of God. And how does he do it? He does it by his word, by his Correct. speaking. Right? Yes. Not our yes. word, but his word. You mean faith comes through hearing? Oh, really? and hear and hearing through the word of the Lord <laughs> is that how that works? Right, and and remaining steadfast in the word. I mean, we have another hymn, right? Mm -hmm. Or keep us steadfast in your word, yes. Um, which is a pretty Lutheran hymn as well, right? That 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 actually is our defense. 
uh, that's our hope, that's our confidence, right? Because because that's Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and apart from that, we've got really we've got nothing. And right. when you abandon the word, you, know, you might be okay for a while. You may even see earthly success mm-hmm. as a church, right? But at some or, point, or at some point, yeah, yeah it's kind of you're gonna something's going to collapse or there's going to be a great scandal or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you've lost your you've lost your actual defense. Right. And to circle back around, this is the temptation in our earthly vocation to abandon the word of God. Mm-hmm. When we're surrounded by other Christians that we want to get along with because they're family or friends, or we encounter people at work or at school or wherever it may be that they raise questions as to your Christianity, your piety, lack thereof, or your overly religious zeal for your faith, whichever ditch they throw you into, what's your confession at that point? Is it to point to Jesus and his word and your need for him and his gifts? Or is it that you point at yourself and try to justify yourself? Or do you condemn the unbeliever or condemn the other person, your brother and sister in Christ and say, well, if you were a Christian or if you were a true Christian, or if you were truly orthodox, you would fill in the blank. Hmm. Yeah. I just had this conversation Saturday after training because we were talking and they brought up um, prison and because the one of my friend's uh, brothers got drunk and killed another man in a uh, drunk driving incident. Yeah. And I just brought up prison ministry and ministering to people in prison and kind of answering some of his questions for him. And the other, the other guy, another friend of mine just brought up, you know, this went to a really dark place. And I said, not really. And I just started to explain to him, I started to make a confession of the faith about what happens when you preach the gospel in prison to people in particular who have been there for a while, that they've been institutionalized into the prison system and why they end up going back in (laughs) and how that works. And so there was the temptation, there's the opportunity there to not make it about my ministry, but rather about myself um, or more specifically to make it about my ministry and not make it about Christ. Versus, no, here's, here's, the, here's where this turns. And now I can actually apologize for the faith to these folks and say, hey, this is actually why you might want to pastor when you're in prison. And at other right. times, maybe right. physically you're not in prison, but hey, you're going through a divorce right now and you've not been able to leave your house for two weeks. That's a prison. Yeah, and there is, there is hope. Um, but notice, you know, it's not us seeking God, but it's the way that God seeks us out. Correct. Right. And, and our prayer is that he do what he's already promised to do, to, right, to give exactly. us to live in his word, to receive us, um, to protect us, you know, to preserve us, right. these things. He's promised to do these things, and so the, the hymn is really a, a prayer um, for, for, the, for the sake of unbelief, right, <laughs> that we trust again. Right. It's a prayer for God's word to be preached, revealed, and worshipped amongst us, as he's mm-hmm. promised. Dr. Luther, yeah. in his Genesis lectures on the sacrifice of Isaac, mentions what Abraham does— So when Isaac asks, Father, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide one. What Luther goes off into is that Abraham is using the revealed God against the hidden God there. Ah, yeah. That God has promised Abraham that his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and as there are kernels of sand, grains of sand at the seashore. And yet his only son, he has been commanded to murder, to execute, to holocaust in the Hebrew. And yet Abraham, as Luther argues, who believes in the resurrection of the dead, because he believes in God's word of promise, knows whether or not God gives him a sacrifice, Isaac will not die. Somewhere, somehow, Isaac will be raised from the dead 
because God promised yep. this is the way it's going to be. And you have similar confessions, um, not only from Job, but but from uh, David, you know, with his Absolutely. son. Um, and the, the servants are all concerned because David's not mourning. Right. Right. It's like, why, why are you not mourning after his son? He mourns before his son dies, mm-hmm. knowing that it, that the death of his son is a result of, of the sin, because God has right. told him that. But then after, he stops mourning. Right. And, and it, believing in the resurrection again, right? Correct. That he, he says, I will see my son again. Right. And for those who have questioned, and this is, there have been plenty of Protestants who have questioned this in the past, is, well, Abraham couldn't possibly have believed in the resurrection because it hadn't <laughs> been revealed to him. Right. Well, Abraham does know who the creator of the heavens and the earth is. He knows who gave him Isaac and created Isaac in Sarah's womb. Therefore, how does Abraham not believe, likewise, that the one who created Isaac can recreate Isaac? Yeah, and that life in in uh, Sarah's womb uh, is in a dead womb, right? Right. I mean, exactly. Old. Yeah. Yeah. So God, I mean, He's demonstrated His ability. So really, our mm, you know rejection of the resurrection. It's not. It's not even just. Who is it? Who is the ditch that said that we can't get across the ditch, or whatever? David Hume or whoever, one of these philosophers, right? That mm-hmm. rejected, um, you know, miracles. Oh, right. Okay, uh, I'm following. Our problem with with miracles is actually just that we don't believe that God is God the Father is the maker of heaven and earth. Right. right? Yeah. At base, that's what it comes down to. Mm. And so, rather, we pray with the psalmist. We pray with Selnicker. You know, stay with us and keep us true. Preserve our faith, our whole life, because your word alone is our defense. And it's really, that's the confidence of the Christian church in every generation, is your word. And yet, in every generation, as Selnicker is writing about, as singing about, the temptation is always to abandon our one certain hope for something else. Which is why, bringing this full circle now at the conclusion of this podcast, if you want to find out what someone's confession is, bring out the Lord's Supper. This is the breaker. It, yeah. It's a deal breaker, man. It doesn't matter what they say. Well, I believe the same thing you do about the Lord's Supper, communion, whatever they say, all you got to do is put the catechism in front of them and say, well, actually, this is what I believe. This is yeah. his body and blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sin, period. Yeah, it's, the way, it's one of the ways that the, that the cross of Christ reaches, you know, or uh, confronts our, <laughs> our actual uh, faith, right? right? Right, Or lack of thereof. Another idea that Zellnecker uh, has in the original, it isn't so much here in the English, but I think is helpful, is where he says that the right teaching will refute that which is new. Yes, right. And uh, which which is, again, something that uh, church perennially struggles against. Mm-hmm. I mean, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, and yet we, when when false doctrine comes along, <laughs> new right. ideas, and we say, well... We're the well, first person to ever think of this. Uh, yeah, if you say that as a pastor or... Well, You're a fool. As anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> as be we very are. careful. Yeah, be very careful and say, where has this been taught before? Right. Um, was it received or was it rejected and why? Uh, and examine. Examine examine all your teaching or all of mm. your um, meditation on God's word um, in comparison, I guess. Well, I brought this up in Bible study yesterday that mm. we have the words of institution unedited without <laughs> blemish, right? The same with yeah. the Lord's Prayer. I said... If you understand church history and you understand human nature, that's a miracle that we still have these words completely unpolluted by our innovations or our attempts to tweak them. Well, and and particularly with Paul, where he conflates them for us, right? Right. (laughs) From the various evangelists. Yeah. Or if you've been in my, uh, my shoes before and you've been there when pastors have riffed 
off the words of institution or simply rewritten them or mm. prayed over the elements quietly, right? Can, you can recognize, <laughs> oh, it is a miracle that the words of institution still stand to this day because yeah. we've done everything possible as a church body. We've done everything possible throughout the past 2000 years to just ruin it for everybody. Well, and this also applies to baptism, of course. Of course. Right? We, we give it new names. Rather mm-hmm. than just calling it baptism, we, we will call it like a christening, which isn't necessarily bad. Um, but then it makes me think of a ship and champagne for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, and if you know the roots of that, that's even more disturbing. Uh, yeah, we don't need to go there. Um, absolution is another one. Well, pastor, no one, can, no nobody but God can forgive sins, people will say. You know, like, you're not right. the first person to say that, right. um, but there's actually a pretty easy response to that, which is the right. Lord sent me to forgive your sins. It's right. the Lord's word. Yeah. Right. Pastor, why <laughs> but, are you always insisting that we have weekly communion? Well, because that's what the Lord sent me to do. I've only got one job. <laughs> it, it's actually a relatively new idea uh, that we could have something else. Right. Right? In place well, of that. And as I always ask too, pastorally, I will ask people when they say, well, why can't we wait to baptize our child? Or why, why can't we wait till next week to have communion? Or whatever it may be. Usually, how do we push God's word away? I always ask, well, what are we going to replace it with? Because there's only one answer. Well, that something is us. <laughs> something <laughs> we've devised, something that we'd rather do, whatever. Right. We want to we be God in God's place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will invent our own sacraments, as history has proven. We will put ourselves as the sacrament in place of the Lord's body and blood. We'll put our own body and blood in place of his. But in in what we do, we want to be our own savior. Each of us wants to be our own savior, and therefore we have to concoct a way in which we can become our own sacrament, a holy instrument of God. That yeah. way, when I go out of the church and back into the world, guess what? I take that with me. Yeah, and we see this play out in, in different matters, as our confessions call them, right? Yes. Um, yes. Where they become so established that they cannot be abandoned mm-hmm. for the sake of faith. Yeah. In other words, because they're, they're actually become an idol. We're, we're, yeah, we're putting yeah. our faith in them, uh, whatever they might be. Matthias Flacius yeah. talks about this in his treatise on Adiaphora, that he points out the danger or the difficulty, locally speaking, is when the elders and the congregation, that this practice has become so enculturated, or as we would say in the present tense, this is the way we've always done it. Mm-hmm. that for you to enter into that and to say, you do realize this is false teaching and it's not biblical. This is a human invention. Or simply put, it's it's not commanded by God. In right, it's word. not commanded by God. It's not that the word of God is rejected so much as it is not present <laughs> any longer. <laughs> it just took the place of. Right, right, it took the place of. And therefore, in that congregation, when it's brought up, the only person that's heretical is you. Like, dare you be the pastor that uh, says that the proper way to celebrate Good Friday is with the sacrament. <laughs> right. And not not through book slams and yeah, right. candle lighting ceremonies and whatever yeah. fun things that you do on Friday to take the place of that. The theatrics of it all. <laughs> yeah. Again, or writing, a, writing a, a pony in on, uh, on uh, Palm Sunday or something. Please don't. Please, please don't. Now I'm thinking of a, now I'm thinking of a Beatles song. Uh, I, don't want to, I dig a pony. But uh, one of your favorites. It is. So I have nothing else to add to this wonderful, very, so very great Lutheran hymn. It's, it's kind of a sobering hymn, isn't it? It really is. 
it's like, I mean, and it is that militaristic um, kind of tone mm -hmm. that we've talked about that Lutherans seem to have, and maybe we know why, because yes. we're always arguing or fighting. But but in particular here, not not just fighting for fighting's sake, but that, that God's word be uh, be at the heart and center of who we are. That, exactly, In other words, right. Jesus be at the heart and center of who we are. Right. Selnicker right. is attacked and driven from town to town because he refuses to abandon the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Right. In, in the Reformation Lutheran confession of what makes the sacrament the sacrament. He refuses right. to abandon that to the Calvinist understanding that it's a spiritual eating and drinking. Or that we don't need the bread and the wine we can use goldfish and kool-aid or in the worst case crackers yeah. and grape juice or something but rather or the receptionism argument or there, there's so many arguments around the lord's supper that come out of the late 1500s and the crypto calvinistic controversy and the way it busts mm -hmm. loose mm -hmm. whereas selnicker and others just went no it's like when someone asked me well do you believe in transubstantiation consubstantiation i'm like no i believe is means is period that's what the Bible teaches, is means is. And that is the distinguishing point, right? Right. Is, is Here's what God's word says, and that's as far as I'm going to go. Exactly. And you want to argue for a different stantiation? Go ahead. That's great. And I've read the dogmatics. I've read Peeper. I know. I get it. I agree with Peeper. But the Bible says, this is my body and this is my blood. And that's where I stop. Mm. And so, yeah, you want to have coffee and talk about consubstantiation versus transubstantiation? We can do that. But come Sunday, is means is, period. Apologetically, when I'm talking with non-Christians, is means is, full stop. And the other thing I really like about this is, is Zellnecker shows how you can be a, uh, a very careful, you know, academic kind of theologian, right? Mm, and, yeah, and good. Like yeah. contributing to the formula of Concord, for example. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, speak in such a way that um, the common, you know, um, you know pew sitter, Mm -hmm. <laughs> hearing or singing a hymn like this or right. hearing your preaching, they they understand. It, it's spoken in a way that isn't abstract, you know, or Right, or it's concrete and real. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a common tongue and it's very uh, pointed um, to daily life and, and that you can do both, right? Like you just said, mm -hmm. you know, you can sit down and argue, you know, these dogmatic details and at the same time turn around and, and preach um, in such a way that it, it actually matters. Right. You know? Yeah. And at least for myself pastorally, that's what I pray and strive for in my ministry is to always keep the Christian faith, keep God's word, keep the sacraments grounded in the concrete reality mm -hmm. of how God wraps himself in these means and delivers himself to us for the forgiveness of sins, life, and eternal salvation. Because at the end of the day, at least according to the ordination paper that's hung on the wall behind me, that's my job. That's why I'm sent. And it's not a, it's not a complicated job. No. Right. You had one job. <laughs> It, it, it's a simple job, but it's not an easy job. There you go. That's, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's all I got. You got anything else? No, this is wonderful. Fantastic. Thank you, as always, for all of your support. We appreciate everything you do to help us keep this podcast up and running. We love you, and we will see you next time for a brand new hymn. Peace. <laughs>